1: All right. Welcome to the show, my fellow wrong thinker. Oh, man, I feel like I have been engaged in wrong think from the moment I got up this morning and I got up early. I'm talking wee hours of the morning. All you guys over 50 years old, you know, with prostate problems, you're going, yeah, I understand what those wee hours of the morning are. All right. TMI. Nonetheless, it has been it's been a very interesting day so far. And uh, and unfortunately, I've I've managed to offend some people, um, not really meaning to, but just uh, you know one of the one of the controversies in my home state of Utah right now is that uh, there are people who are um, how can I put this not in complete agreement. <laughs> with the governor or the lieutenant governor who will soon be governor when he is inaugurated in January um, concerning their lockdown policies, their mandates, their determination that, my gosh, we're going to flex our political muscles and we're going to make covid obey us. And you see this this craziness everywhere. I mean, the big electronic billboards over the freeway, if they're not from your household, video chat and so forth. Please consider not having anybody over for Thanksgiving. And, of course, the mask mandates and leaning on the businesses and so forth. And and here's the kicker. The people who are making these decisions. Yes, Governor, I'm looking your direction. Yes, Lieutenant Governor, you, you bear responsibility in this as well. Expect to be absolutely left unquestioned. No one should think twice about what they say. After all, we're in authority here. We tell you what to do. And they're forgetting something very important. They work for us. And if the policies that they are pushing or the the mandates that they are pushing are harmful to people, as in forcing people to close their businesses or forcing them not to earn a living, isolating them, Trapping them in debt, trapping them in depression, despair, drug abuse. I think it's right for the people to push back. If there, if there are immoral things going on with these policies, if they are illegal, as in is, is this uh, person in authority exercising legitimate power that's actually theirs, according to the way our government is structured. Not just something they made up because, well, it sounds important and I know you're going to obey And then there's the question of, are these policies effective? So I know it's unpopular, and this actually lands me on the opposite side of the issue of of some of my good friends who are are really against a lot of these mandates, but uh, they are really incensed. Well, I just think it's dead wrong for people to show up and protest outside, you know, the homes of these elected leaders. Now, here's where I have to draw the line. And and it's okay if you don't if you don't agree with me, that's that's cool. Believe it or not, I've been disagreed with before and uh, somehow didn't end up losing nights of sleep over it. As long as the behavior is peaceful, I think these people have an absolute right to make themselves heard. If that's just by their mere presence or holding a sign or otherwise, you know, letting this elected official know we do not agree. I think they're totally within their right to peacefully assemble and to make their voices heard. Now, I got to give some credit to Spencer Cox, and this is not a guy who I would normally be inclined to to praise. But I thought it was a pretty classy move um, over the weekend. He said, hey, there were people uh, you know, protesting at his home in Fairview. That's a pretty remote location. That's that's, you know, flyover country by Utah standards. But he said, as long as they come out here to protest, he goes, the least I can do is, you know, give them hot chocolate and cookies, which he did. And I understand, you know, he's he's probably not taking them seriously as protesters. But I think that uh, I think that's a far more productive approach than the why we should call more police in here and we should hunker down because just the fact that somebody's here is a threat. If you are that afraid That you cannot distinguish between someone who is is behaving in a threatening fashion and someone who is just standing there because they have no other mechanism of being heard. They're not a legislator. They're not a bureaucrat. They're not a six-figure campaign donor. I don't know what to tell you. But I will say this, and then I'll jump off the soapbox. So if, if it makes you feel better to say, these people are being dicks, congratulations. You're calling names. You're being crass. You've run out of substance in the space of a single sentence. But I'm am going to ask you, aside from, uh, you know, hurling some invective from behind your keyboard, what are you doing to stand up against injustice or immoral or illegal or ineffective policies that are actually hurting people? I'm not saying you have to agree with these these protesters, I'm just going to say they actually have some skin in the game. They're the ones who are standing out there in the cold. They are the ones trying to do something to be heard. And again, as long as their behavior is peaceful, I applaud them for doing so. But if you think you're brave because, well, I can call names from behind my keyboard, and especially I can start hurling profanity. I'm sorry, but that's pathetic. And if you think that's making any kind of a difference, it's not. You know, it's just... It's, it's building yourself up. It's, it's, it's that, that pseudo-righteousness of, well, I'm against the right things. You know how I know? Because I'm safely here in the middle of the crowd. Yeah, why don't you try and stand up against the crowd sometime and then get back to me. Show me that you have the backbone to stand for your principles when it is not the popular thing to do, but nonetheless may be the right thing to do. Then we can talk. In the meantime, I will reserve my respect for people who actually have skin in the game. And whether you agree with these protesters who are saying enough with the mask mandates, enough with these other harmful lockdown policies or not, at the very least, you have to acknowledge they're willing to do something more than just sit around and cry on their keyboard. Maybe we could learn something from them. All right, let's go to the phone. 801-331-8113. Caller, welcome to the show.
2: Well, slaves are pathetic, Brian. They've been beat a long time ago and... I don't understand those people. They're taxed at 60, 70 percent. They can't do anything really for free that means much other than breathe.
1: But they're not thinking of that. All they're thinking of is fear. But COVID, COVID, they don't follow the COVID directives. Jared, they don't follow the science. And so that's what they're going to hide behind. They're hiding in the skirts of some perceived authority because they don't have the courage to go out there and, and make these choices for themselves.
2: Yeah, agency can be a scary thing. It, everything, every choice involves risk. If there is no risk, there is no choice. That's just no, that's true. laws of the universe. Yeah,
1: I agree. Yeah, you, you can't have freedom without risk.
2: Nope. And that's where uh, trusting God comes in. People that don't trust in God trust in the state because that's the next most obvious answer. If you have no independent scruples... But anybody that's really afraid of the COVID bugs and, you know, they're hiding behind their face panties, ask them to step into the closet. You're going to pull the pin on a little bottle of pepper spray and just throw it in there and they'll be OK.
1: <laughs> yeah, for for about the first breath, then, <laughs> then they're not, not going to be so OK.
2: Wait, 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 wait. You don't think the mask will stop pepper spray?
1: No, not even close. But here's, here's, the well, thing. here's the thing, Jared. I don't want to regard these people as my enemy, and it saddens me that they would regard me as their enemy because I hold a different point of view. I just think that they ought to have the privilege to, to make up their own mind and not go around trying to impose it on other people by force. You know, political power, unfortunately, has been weaponized, and, and this is true across the board. People on all sides of the political spectrum want to use it. It's that political power that's the enemy. Not the person who sees the world differently than you do it's that willingness to try to use force against each other that is the problem, and, and they don't see that because they're so scared. Oh, we might die well, if you've already given up that much of your life, you might as well be dead. What are you living yeah, and, for
2: and you, and I don't want them coming back truthfully dead weight voting is the most violent thing you can do sometimes against another person
1: yeah if you're voting to if you're voting in order to use state force. To force somebody else to do what you want them to do, I agree. That's an, that's an yep. offensive move.
2: A coal of the herd would be a blessing for me. Well, and I st- think of all the oxygen. Think of all the oxygen we'd have.
1: Well, extra, I, extra. I believe that there are people who can still be reached, but uh, they just they haven't reached the point where they're willing to question some of those assumptions yet. And so I, I try to. I try to. When I try to talk to him, I try to do it without bringing more anger into the situation. That's hard and to do. are
3: the, yes,
2: blessed are the peacemakers. And, he, and here's what'll do it: uh, a natural disaster where people would be forced to work together. They would soon realize we're not dying. We're still not dying. Right all these people are homeless and we're still not dying, and and we have to work together for survival. And think of the fireside chats you would have as, as you're sitting around your campfire out in your front yard.
1: It would definitely be a bonding experience. Jared, thanks for the call. We'll take a break. We'll be back right after this.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Yes, I have calmed down. My friend who's a doctor called me up and said, look, I want you to take 500 milligrams chill pill stat. I did it. I'm calm now. It just it just irritates me. Maybe it's because I know a lot of people who have have taken courageous stands and sometimes paid a very high price to do so. And, uh, you know, no offense, keyboard warriors, but you don't have the cred that you think you have. Unless you unless you've been willing to suffer for your beliefs, I'm always going to look more closely and take with greater seriousness what a person who has suffered for their beliefs is saying. I hope that makes sense. I want to share with you a commentary from Paul Rosenberg about self-generated certainty. I think this plays into what I'm getting at here. There's a lot of uncertainty. He says, in fact, there's a lot to feel uncertain about in this world. In fact, making things worse, more or less, are all the large things in this world are arranged to reap from our uncertainty. Advertising, by the way, is an obvious example, reaping from insufficiencies that are implanted and then filled with their products. Why is your life terrible? It's because you don't have fresh minty breath and white teeth, right? But governments function similarly. And even a lot of relationships revolve around insecurity matching. So he says, needless to say, insecurity feels bad and it certainly is no aid to good decision making. So it's clearly in our self interest to fix this. But how do you go about building self-generated certainty? And, and we all know people who have, shall we say, a surplus of certainty to the point where it's cockiness or, or a sense of infallibility. Okay, that's the extreme. Aristotle used to talk about the, the doctrine of the, that, that golden mean between uh, cowardice and recklessness somewhere in the middle. That's the ethical mean that we should be striving for. And I think the same thing would apply with with certainty. I like how Paul Rosenberg approaches this. He says we can start by jettisoning any any expectation, jettisoning any expectation of help from entities that reap from our insecurities. Here's what that means. He says the central assumption of our age is that we're clinging to life and whatever comforts we can grab in a world with no real meaning. So we're not going to get a lot of help from public voices. But he says, still, we can have certainty in our lives. And this is the key. Not perfect certainty, of course. That's only for the dead. But we can have a powerful core of certainty, one that won't vanish with the next change of circumstances. What we generate from within ourselves can't be easily taken from us. Do you understand what he's saying? That sense of certainty cannot be from an outside source. And if that's what you're relying on, look, you you, you see this with people. We all know people who thrive on how they see themselves through what others are telling them. If I don't wear this brand of clothing, if I don't drive a car that's at least this nice or live in this neighborhood in a house with this much square footage so that people can tell me, wow, that's really nice. Wow, that's cool. Wow, I wish I had that. Otherwise, how am I going to feel good about myself? You see what I'm saying? Their self-esteem comes from something outside of themselves. Contrast that with the people who actually have generated that sense of certainty from within, who have that that powerful core. And it's not so much that that they're right. It's that they know who they are and they know what they stand for. And you can still be flexible. You can still be open to new truth and have a good, solid core of certainty. So this is how you do it. According to Paul Rosenberg, he said, ultimately, self-certainty rests upon believing, believing down into your bones that you are a good man or woman. You must know that you're a beneficial being in the universe and the contrary to to received wisdom. That's not so terribly hard. He says, fundamentally, we believe in ourselves by observing ourselves. What we're talking about here is simple, simply having faith in yourself. And getting it is far easier than the authorized class would have you believe. Basically, it's a two-step process featuring two variants of the Golden Rule. And here's how it works. First, you focus on Rabbi Hillel's version of the Golden Rule, which is, what is hateful to you, do to no man. If you do this, Paul Rosenberg says, you can be very sure that you are not an unjust person. And he says, please notice, you don't have to compare yourself to anyone or anything outside of yourself. Politicians, professors and other outsiders have no place in this process. You are measuring yourself against yourself. And in the end, if you act this way, you can know with certainty that you aren't a bad person. He says, and I'll add that acting this way isn't all that hard if you ignore the aforementioned politicians, professors and so on. So living by the rabbi's way. You'll have a fixed base for your self-certainty. Now, you will make occasional mistakes, but you'll also fix them. Then you can move along to the next variant of the golden rule, that of the rabbi from Nazareth. Whatever you would have men do to you, do so to them. Now, he says what Jesus says here is impossible in the present world, of course. There are so many needy and suffering people that you'd have to give away everything you have and die of exposure and starvation but what he's really doing is making a point. You should go beyond just causing no harm and become a positive force in the world. And he says to use exactly the same method that Hillel does, self-reference. He says by acting in Jesus's way, you build upon your fixed foundation with every little piece you put on it, you'll know that you are a net positive in the universe. You'll have solid and legitimate reasons for faith in yourself, more than that, it will all be within yourself, or no person and no circumstance can simply wash it away. Gosh, I hope this is making as much sense to you as it is to me. Maybe I'm the one who really needed to hear this. That's entirely possible. Paul talks about living with a solid base. He says, if you do what we've outlined above, and again, it's not that hard, if you commit yourself to it, you'll know. Based upon honest facts that you're fundamentally a good being. And he says, please trust me that this is attainable and very, very comforting. Now, he says, this doesn't make you certain about everything. Of course, this is a difficult and variable world, but it does make you deadly sure about your part of it. And from that base, you can build piece by piece. You can lay your competencies upon your base and be confident that once in place, they will remain your base will not be overturned. And so if you take the course prescribed by our two rabbis, you certainly about yourself will be firm, providing a base upon which your, cer- your certainty about yourself will be firm, rather, providing a base upon which your certainty about your interactions with the world will increase year by year. And seeing that you'll never get this kind of certainty from ethics courses, the ridiculous laws of the nations, or even the demands of family, he says, I think the better choice is obvious. I really hope that doesn't strike you as as being somewhat, uh, you know, um, esoteric or or abstract in, in terms of, well, how would you apply that by boiling it down to those two simple things? What's hateful to you do to no man and whatever you would have men do to you, in other words, the way you would want to be treated, do so to them. It does take effort. That's part of, you know, you've heard me talk about this, this faux righteousness that people walk around with, the virtue signaling, well, I'm woke, and that's why I'm announcing to you that I'm better than you because I believe this. I'm against discrimination. I'm against hatred. I'm against whatever, whatever, whatever. And people get so wrapped up in it that they never stop to think about, but what do your actions show you to be for? For? What do you actually stand for? And you'll actually see panic in people's eyes sometimes if you ask them. But what do you stand for when they've gotten through telling you this long list of all the things and people and products and companies and and, and ideologies that they're against? If you really want to be known for something, then I would say it's probably more laudable to be known for what you stand for than simply who or what you're against. That's just my opinion. But I think there's something to this, and I think Paul Rosenberg spells it out beautifully.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The
1: Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, lines are open. 801-331-8113. If you'd like to uh, come and revel in some wrong think, I would welcome your company. Came across a couple of great articles today that I wanted to share with you. Uh, the Foundation for Economic Education, fee.org. If you haven't subscribed to their daily emails, you are missing out on so much good information. And uh, this is the thing I love. Is it's, it's never boring. There's always a wide variety of things. They cover economics. They cover politics, culture, education. But there's always some very substantive and thought-provoking commentary. And, and why, why would I point that out above, you know, the latest outrage? You know, what should I be mad about? Would it surprise you to know that there are a lot of people who tune into programs like this and, and others simply to find out, what am I supposed to be mad about today? My intention is never to be the guy who's who's here to deal your outrage. Hey man, what do you need? Dime bag? Nickel bag? How much you want? Yo. No. I would much rather prefer that we talk about things which matter, which may or may not, you know, bring your blood pressure up, but do it in a way that we're actually covering it with with some some observance of the principles that are at stake and more importantly, what can you and I do within our respective spheres of influence? to move the needle in the right direction. I know it's kind of an idealistic way to do it, but I'm convinced there is a need for this. It's why I do things the way that I do, and it's it's why I'm eternally grateful for each and every one of my 5 listeners who have discovered this program and who tune in. And I'm grateful for all 5 of you. Maybe maybe with some work we'll be up to 6 by the end of this year. Caller, welcome to the show.
3: I must be one of those five listeners. You are. Well, I mean, I'm just kind of curious as to when, when the people are just going to say enough's enough, and just go about their business and, and just totally ignore everything they're trying to mandate on us. I mean, they've been pushing this mass thing for nine months now around the world, and it ain't working. It, according to you know all their hospital data that they have it's just not working the masks aren't doing it and and i see more masks laying in the streets and in the gutters and in flower beds and on people's lawns and, and are those contaminated too
1: i don't know but i don't go out of my way to pick them up
3: well i mean they're in the atmosphere you know i mean there's stuff just breathing on it and you know i i mean it's just this ludicrous, this mask thing. I, I don't feel comfortable wearing these masks. I've tried it, and uh, I don't like wearing them. And I think they're, they're a hindrance. And, <clears throat> I mean, people, they're going to get the cold. They're going to get the flu. They're going to get pneumonia. They're, they're going to get, get COVID. Just,
1: they're going to get it. It's a virus. It's making its way through society. That's that's the thing that I don't understand, Rob. You know, we've we've been through pandemics before here in this country. Jeff Tucker has written about this extensively for the American Institute for Economic Research. During Woodstock, there was a pandemic going on. I think it was the Hong Kong flu. There was a polio pandemic that took place, I believe, in the early 50s, late 40s. There, there have been pandemics, but always it was just acknowledged. You can't stop the virus. You can just you know protect the most vulnerable, but everybody else goes about their business. And, and I don't know why we're doing this so differently today.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, I just spoke with a friend who just was down in Mexico. And uh, they're going through the same thing, and uh, they're not wearing pants. They're not making all this drama out of this whole thing. They're going about their business, and, uh, you know, that's all they can do. And, uh, yeah, I think... This has got to stop. These people owning restaurants, you know, got to get back to making business.
1: I'm concerned about the economic aspects because it's already got people on the ropes and and, and I don't know how they can hang on through another massive lockdown. This is probably the biggest concern I have about the prospect of Joe Biden taking, you know, the reins in the White House is he's talking, well, what we need to do is shut this thing down for four to six weeks. That will kill off what remains of, of most of middle America and its business backbone.
3: Well, I mean, she's trying to do it right now in, in I think it's Michigan. Yes. that um, Gretchen,
1: Gretchen Whitmer. And she's,
3: and she's starting Wednesday. Um, bars are going to be shut down. Restaurants are going to be shut down. That's going to kill them up there. Anybody in that business.
1: And here's the thing. If it worked, if they could point to it and say, but this has actually worked, but they can't. The lockdown policies have failed, but they want to go back to them. And we will just we're going to try it harder and see if that works. How does that make my, my sense? Big
3: question, my big question to you, Brian, is, and I, I haven't heard anybody report on it. Maybe you might know something about it. I, I think it was a month back. It was Governor DeSantos opened everything up and stopped with the masks and all that stuff. It wasn't, you know, a mandate anymore. Well, how did
1: that turn out for them? Oh, I'm sure Florida is a living hell right now. The crematoriums must be running night and day. They run out of spaces to bury people. And no, I'm, I'm kidding. No, we haven't heard I much know. of anything. We don't hear much That's either the- a- about how it's not just Sweden, but also Norway and Finland. All took very similar hands-off approaches without heavy lockdowns or mask mandates. And all of them seem to have weathered COVID as well as it could be done. They've certainly done no worse than any other country and, and in fact, have done a lot better than a lot of the really serious lockdown countries.
3: Yeah, so I'm I'm kind of curious about that, how that worked in Florida, because I would have to say that needs to be, uh, you know, something needs to be publicized, the the results of that, because from what I understand, he opened up restaurants, no mask mandates, and I just never did hear about the... uh, outcome of it and uh i think a little researching that would be pretty uh you know would be good to have and you can know presented to these
1: people here in this state amen guys there's there's a great article on wired that i just saw pop up on my twitter feed earlier today um called a lack of transparency is undermining pandemic policy and wired is is figuring it out All these crazy measures and arbitrary dictates aren't based on science. You have people in authority just making things up. And so we should we should not feel like we should apologize for saying, you know what? I don't trust these guys. I don't trust Cuomo. I don't trust Herbert. I don't trust Gretchen Whitmer. They don't have all the information. They're just they're winging it and their ideas. We flex our political muscles. We use the force of the state and that uh, gives us the outcome that we want. It's a virus. It doesn't care what you say. It doesn't care what you mandate. It will make its way through the population. All you're doing is prolonging how long it's going to take to do so.
3: I mean, some of these things I'm seeing, you know, walking into a restaurant, and then, you know, you've got to have a mask on to walk to your table. It's ludicrous.
1: And then you can take it off.
3: And then you can take take it off. Yeah. I mean, these things, these, these things are crazy, you know, and...
1: I, I'm with you. I'm with you.
3: All right. All right well, take care, man. I got to get off this
1: horn. Okay. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate the call. He is one of my five listeners for which I am so very grateful. Now, the other uh, the other four of you, actually the other three of you, because Jared's already called in, um, should, should consider giving me a shout here. 801-331-8113. I actually I've posted in the show notes and I would encourage you go to my show notes at the dot show.com these are the notes for November 16th there is an article here from Ira Katz about why these lockdowns are immoral, illegal and ineffective and he breaks it down on each one of these points that these lockdowns should be considered as a type of medical intervention and they're using this this lockdown approach in, in a way that's never been tried before in the history of the world before 2020. And using the he uses the 10 points of the Nuremberg Code for the medical ethics developed in the wake of Nazi crimes during World War II to uh, to break down the immorality of these lockdowns. Things like the voluntary consent consent of the human subject is absolutely essential the degree of risk to be taken should never exceed that to be that determined by the humanitarian importance of the problem to be solved by the experiment. There's 10 different points here and they are spot on. He talks about the illegal nature of what is being done. and We talked a lot about this, the, the assumption of powers that were not expressly delegated to a particular branch of government. Primarily, it's the executive branches at all levels of government. With this pen and with this clipboard, we will fix everything. If it's not power that was explicitly delegated to you, that's not your call to make. And then there's the question of the ineffectiveness of it. Tom Woods has some remarkable content. In fact, when we come back from the break here in a few moments, I'll share with you a couple of thoughts from Tom Woods that that break down. The effectiveness of these national lockdowns, Nobody can show that it has conclusively stopped or even slowed the spread of the virus. How do we know this because there are differing uh, there are differing ap- approaches, some locking down very hard, some not locking down at all that achieve almost remarkably similar results. All the lockdowns are doing is making life more difficult for everybody. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is
1: The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's go right to the phone line. I've got Ray standing by. Hi, Ray. Welcome to the program.
4: Hi, Brian. Thank you for taking my call today. Um, you know it's, it, what it comes down to is um, it, I think it's good that people are losing faith in the media and I think it's good people are losing faith in government because we're supposed to be the government we should have faith in ourselves and, and, and the um, spiritual divine nature in us you know if, if we should have faith in the wisdom of the ages you know which is the Bible. I mean, science has taken a lot of us away from the Bible, but the Bible is what made this country great, different than any other country that's ever existed. You know, and if if people can't handle God, well, you know, wisdom of ages in the Bible, or the law of nature and the law of consequences. There's definitely, you know, physical laws and the nature and consequences. But, you know, the best is, is faith in our Creator. That you know, and that's what made America great. And I don't know how to get the word out, my friend.
1: I, it, it just starts with the individual, and, and I know you have influence within your own home, within your neighbors, your your coworkers. That's where it starts. Actually, it starts it starts even closer than that, though. But you already understood this. It starts with you, you and me, getting ourselves squared away, making sure we understand what matters and then uh, finding the opportunities finding the courage to speak up or to uh, to just be there and answer questions for people and you'll know you're doing it right when people start seeking you out and say ray can you tell me about this i heard you mention this the other day and i wanted to know more that is a sure sign that you have have mastered that knowledge of that particular subject to the point that someone trusts you to get your opinion on it
4: and, you know, just being involved with our neighbors, loving our neighbors as ourselves, being involved in our community churches, you know, and, of course, you know, government, local government. You, you know, we can't depend on the government to run our lives. We've got to do it ourselves. We've got to stand up and do it ourselves. And and we don't have to go for these situational ethics that's why this country's the way it is they just get deeper 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 into the deep state situational ethics well cut a corner here 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 you know i mean the wisdom of the ages is in the bible and we serve our neighbors our communities it's really
1: simple it's true and by by the way (laughs) the bible and shakespeare's folio those were, those were the two most common books that people carried with them as the United States was founded, as the expansion westward took place. They didn't have room for vast libraries, most of them. So they picked the most important books they can, ones they could go back to and learn from over and over. And the Holy Bible and Shakespeare's works were the most common books that they read.
4: Excellent. Excellent, my friend. Good to hear. Keep up the good work.
1: Okay, thanks so much for the call. Um, I want to share a couple of real quick excerpts here. Uh, this is from an email that I got in my inbox uh, today from Tom Woods. If you haven't subscribed to his emails, you are missing out. He is not only very knowledgeable, but he's a supremely entertaining teacher. He keeps things interesting and he just has a fun way of expressing himself. And uh, there, there's a tremendous amount of humor. This is an email titled "It's almost as if none of the virus mitigation measures work. He says, Steve Sisolak, governor of Nevada, recently scolded citizens of his state why only irresponsible behavior can account for a rise in cases there. By the way, we're hearing similar stuff to this all over. So he's telling Nevadans, you have two weeks to get things under control. And he warned, I'm not going to come back in another two weeks and say I'm going to give you another chance. Well, guess what? Three days later... Governor Sisolak himself tested positive for COVID-19. And Tom Wood says, should we treat him like he's seven and scold him for his irresponsible behavior the way he just did to his citizens? Now, to his credit, Governor Sisolak was forced to admit, you can take all the precautions that are possible and you can still contract the virus. I don't know how I got it. As Alex Berenson says, virus going to virus. Now, Tom Woods says the current state of lockdown science appears to be we have no idea what we're doing, but if something brings people pleasure, we should probably limit or prohibit it. And if something causes great inconvenience or even pain, we should probably do that. An anonymous professor who posts on Twitter about the virus just presented this graph for consideration, and it's a plot of COVID deaths in North Carolina and Oklahoma. These states have adopted very different approaches to the virus, and yet somehow They more or less track each other anyway. You've got to see the the graph to appreciate it. Again, virus going to virus. Yesterday, former Secretary of Education Arnie Duncan posted the following. I so appreciate everyone's good wishes. How did we catch it? I don't know. We wore masks. We socially distanced. We avoided crowds. We haven't had people in our house. And I'm sure whoever gave it to us felt they did the same. COVID is in the air now in almost every room you enter. How did we catch it? I don't know. We wore masks. We socially distanced. We avoided crowds. We haven't had people in our house. Virus going to virus. Now, Tom Woods says you can either accept this and take steps to protect those among us who are most at risk while others resume the one life they're given. Or we can destroy our social fabric. Meanwhile, we have family and friendships being torn apart all over this. You're a bad person if you reject the propaganda. Why don't you care about saving lives? You're selfish. Never mind the countless lives lost by the lockdown itself, a point that he and others have made time and again. Those lives don't seem to count for some reason. This is why you need to question that narrative. And this is why it's okay, And it's even advisable. And people may call you names. In fact, it's almost a guarantee they will call you names. All I would ask you to consider is whether anybody who has taken any kind of principled moral stand throughout history was able to avoid that unhappy circumstance of being called names or worse by their detractors. I mean, for crying out loud, some of them got burned at the stake. I'd take a few names being called and being tied to a stake and burned alive. All right, one final note. I've only got a couple of minutes here, but I want to share with you a couple of excerpts From a column from Hannah Cox, this was published on the Foundation for Economic Education's website, four policies Joe Biden must rethink if he actually wants to address racial disparities. Because right now, isn't he kind of positioned not only as president-elect without the election having been finalized, but he's also the guy who's going to heal the soul of our nation and he's going to address systemic racism. He's claiming some kind of a mandate that uh, this is what he's supposed to do. Well, there have been a lot of promises made by a lot of politicians over the years, and believe it or not, voters are a little disillusioned with the Democratic Party's empty promises. Hannah Cox, in particular, picks out four specific areas where if Biden really meant business and really wants to eliminate the racially biased outcomes that can be found in America, these are the top four policy positions he could embrace that would actually affect change and eradicate injustice. You ready for this? Number one, school choice. Real school choice. And she goes into great detail as to why that should take place and how it could take place. Now, keep in mind, so far, Biden has caved to the pressure of the teachers' unions and indicated he's opposed to school choice measures. But she says if he's serious about healing the racial divide, he'll need to rethink that flawed position. Secondly, occupational licensing. Believe it or not, Barack Obama actually had a pretty good take on reducing occupational licensing. Now, it remains to be seen whether Biden will do this, but these occupational licensing laws have a history of systemic racism and continue to hurt people of color at an infuriating rate. Getting rid of them should be an easy call. Number three, Hannah Cox says run away from lockdowns. Unfortunately, a coronavirus advisor to President-elect Biden has hinted at the nationwide at a nationwide lockdown in response to recent upticks in the coronavirus pandemic. She says uh, the lockdowns have never proven capable of actually preventing the spread of the coronavirus. And in fact, by many metrics, they've actually made it worse. So it's horrific to imagine that a Biden administration might not only wreak such havoc in communities of color through further lockdowns, but worse would do so for an approach that would fail to make society healthier in the first place. And finally, Number four, drug decriminalization. It's common knowledge that the real target of the war on drugs implemented by Richard Nixon's administration was always the anti-war left and the black community. The police, these policies rather, were an opportunity to arrest the leaders of these communities, raid their homes, bust up their meetings, vilify them on the evening news. Now, currently, Biden doesn't even support vanilla positions like legalizing marijuana. So it's unlikely he's going to be the reformer that the country, and especially communities of color, need on this issue. His continued support for the war on drugs reinforces racial inequality. It's a great article. I really recommend. Take a look at it. You'll find it linked in the show notes, which, again, you will find at com. Can I ask a favor, too? If you would be so kind as to share this program with your friends... Let's see if we can bring our total number of listeners up to six by the end of this year. I know we can do this.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.